0: Welcome to Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart. I am your host, Karen Litzy, and this is the first live show we are doing in this new year. So thank you all for tuning in. And uh, for those of you listening here in the United States, happy Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And today was Inauguration Day for our president, once again, uh, President Barack Obama. So a lot going on here in the U.S. and just wanted to acknowledge all of that today. And today, we're sort of continuing on with sort of a powerhouse month of physical therapy topics and physical therapy guests, and today is no different. I am very happy to have on the show Linda Joy Lee. She is a physiotherapy graduate from the University of British Columbia in Canada and UBC Westbrook scholar in 1996 She became a fellow of the Canadian Academy of Manipulative Physiotherapy in 1999 with Distinction, completed her certification in intramuscular stimulation in 2001, and she is a co-founder of Discover Physio with Diane Lee, who we had on the show last week, so there is going to be a little intermingling of some of the information. And LJ has a passion for helping people explore and realize their potential. She mentors a team of physiotherapists at her clinic, Synergy Physiotherapy, in North Vancouver, Canada, where she is the director and a practicing physical therapist. She has also published several research papers on the thorax from her Ph.D. studies at the University of Queensland with Professor Paul Hodges at the Center for Clinical Research Excellence in Spinal Pain, Injury, and Health. So, uh, Linda Joy Lee, thank you, and welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Karen, for having Sure, Uh, sure Speak on the show
0: Of course So, like I said Last week we had on uh, Diane Lee And we were talking um, a lot about the integrated systems model And I just wanted to kind of quickly touch on that as, As the two of you sort of are all over the world Kind of teaching this through your Discover Physio series And For the people who maybe didn't get to listen in this week and are just picking up the show this week, if you wouldn't mind giving maybe just a quick overview of the integrated systems model.
1: Sure, Karen. Uh, It's a tough one to give a quick overview, but I'll do my best. Yeah. Um, Basically, the integrated systems model represents uh, the individual and of work Diane and I over plus 50 years together. And it took us a long time to come up with a name. And basically, it's not a classification. It's a clinical reasoning model. And it's designed to enable clinicians to determine the true underlying cause to their patients' problems. And this is what needed to determine the best treatment program for each individual patient that has the highest probability of obtaining the best outcome. So it's really a whole-person approach And I think the thing that's important to note is that it's an inclusive model. So it's not meant to replace things that have come before. It's actually meant to be broad enough to incorporate all the knowledge and all the different ways we have to look at bodies, function, and pain, and health, and disability. And in that way, what it does is provide the framework for everyone to organize and access all their past current, and knowledge that will even come out in the future, because in order to be effective clinicians, we need knowledge from all different sources, and, and that's really, truly evidence based practice.
0: Yeah, and, and, you know, it's interesting you should mention that, because when I was in, a couple of months ago, I was out in Portland at a course taught by Lorimer Mosley and, and your mentor, Paul Hodges, and um, Dr. Hodges actually mention that in part of his teaching is that you know he's trying to get all of these different classifications and models and have them sort of work together for the betterment of the patient or for the best practice for the patient mm-hmm and yeah
1: and we we really need to recognize that research is an important source of information but also that you know clinical expertise is the ability to actually organize knowledge from multiple sources, and that includes your personal life experiences and your clinical experiences and you know the way you relate to people so all of those things are what make a complete package of an effective clinician
0: yeah I, I agree a hundred percent and <clears throat> one of the things I know that you know in speaking with Diane uh, last week or the show aired last week. Um, and listening to you and Diane lecture a couple of weeks ago here in New York City, um, they sort of talked about the integrated systems model as focusing on meaningful tasks versus just protocol, and how does that fit into the current research into cprs and for the cpr 's um, uh, clinical um, prediction, prediction rules. rules right for those who don 't know what cprs it 's not CPR as if you give to someone when they have a heart attack. <laughs> it's a clinical prediction rule that we can, as physical therapists, use what we're seeing to maybe direct our treatment.
1: Yeah, I, you know, and clinical prediction rules are just another uh, are another way of deriving uh, protocol. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you mentioned that how does meaningful task analysis differ from protocol, and this would be the same as. You know, every time you have a low back pain patient, you pull out a form that is my low back assessment. So, you know, we can talk about protocol in general. And then, related to clinical prediction rules, you know, basically they're statistically derived. So, in terms of how we figure out what a treatment related prediction rule is, is that you collect a bunch of features of the patient, you have inclusion and exclusion criteria. Mm-hmm. And then you determine how people respond to treatment, and then you do a statistical analysis to see which things of your original assessment were predictive of who responded to that treatment. So one of the challenges is that if you didn't assess certain things, for example, many times when I read clinical prediction rules, I think, well, I would have done this test, Mm -hmm. and they didn't include that in the study. And you can only use the clinical prediction rule if your patient exactly matches the inclusion and exclusion criteria that they used in the study. So it it gives you information about very specific subgroups, but many of your patients don't fit into that. So it would be valid to apply those patients. First, using strategy analysis that is directed to the path. Which means task
0: assessment. Oh, you know something? I'm going to have you, sorry. I'm going to just have you repeat that for one second because it kind of broke up a little bit. Sorry.
1: Sorry, Karen, I'm getting a bit of an echo. Oh, that's, yeah, yeah.
0: I know, I know. (laughs) Sorry about that.
1: (laughs) Okay. So the difference would be with a meaningful task assessment, you can apply that to any person in front of you uh, because it's an individualized approach, it's directed by the patient's story. And what has been to them and meaningful task analysis means that you're only going to collect information that's relative to that patient Mm -hmm. and not a whole bunch of other tasks that take your time but also may direct you away from what true underlying problem is so for example you know if you're a swimmer um, and you get low back, which is not a common thing. You get back pain when you swim, there's a whole part of your swimming scope that looks like forward bend. And yet many of the protocols for assessing low back pain patients involve a forward bend. Mm-hmm. And if you find impairment on forward bending, they may or may not be apparent, impairment that take or during. And this is actually strongly supported by the research. So a lot of control research supports that the changes we see in muscle activation patterns, the way the central nervous system activates and controls the way you move and live in your body, are individual but also very task-specific. Mm-hmm. So if one research study studies patients with neck pain looking at um, one task, and then another research study picks a different path. You may see different changes in their neuromuscular strategies sure. in the same group.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and you know what was interesting, and you kind of you guys sort of used this example in the lecture that you gave at KEMA, and I think, or and it was also uh, a lecture from from the Discover Fib uh, Discover Discover physio website was um, and again Diane used it during the show is looking at this guy from Cirque de Soleil who had s- scapular pain but he only had it when he was standing on one hand with his legs bent over to the side <laughs> and she's like so you know we're not going to do a myriad of tests to see with him like standing, standing upright or she, you know we want to get him into that task and kind of see what happens
1: Absolutely. Now obviously that's quite a complex of course task to of course. apply your manual assessment. And I guess one of the things we've done through our combined interests about very specific manual techniques and very uh, functional sport movements uh, is to actually break that down. So while I did assess him in his one hand standing, uh-huh. um, hands down with his legs moving, <laughs> um, I also broke that task down and got him to do combined side rotation type movement
2: mm-hmm. that was
1: related to what he needed to do. And that then is a simpler task that helps you be able to do your uh, finding the primary driver and determining which area you're then focused in.
0: Exactly. and And on that, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to get more into the thoracic ring approach. Um, So, everyone stay tuned and we'll be right back. Thank
2: you.
0: Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours
3: a day.
4: Are you stuck in your business or career? Trying to take your business to the next level and it keeps hitting a wall? This is Sam Leibowitz, the Conscious Consultant. I will help you get to the root cause of your abundance issues and help move you forward in your life. Call me now and let's create the future you dream of. 212-721-8183. That's 212-721-8183. The Conscious Consultant, helping conscious people be better business people.
5: Are you concerned about the future of your business or career? Would you like it all to just be better? Well, the way to do that is through better communication. And the best way to do that is training from the team at Improving Communications. This is Larry Sharp, host of the Ivory Tower Radio Program and director at Improving Communications. Does your office need better leadership, customer service, sales, or maybe better writing or speaking skills? Could they be better at dealing with confrontation, conflicts, and touchy subjects? All are covered here at Improving Communications. If you're in the New York City area, stop by one of our public classes or get your human resources in touch with us. The website is improvingcommunications.com, that's improvingcommunications.com. Improve your professional environment, be more effective, be happier, and make more money. Improving Communications. That's the answer.
6: Hey, all you crazy listeners. Looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at talkingalternative.com. Talking Alternative.
5: This <laughs> ain't a song for the broken hearted.
0: And we are back here on TalkingAlternative.com. You're listening to Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart. I'm your host, Karen Litzy, and I am joined today by physical therapist, Linda Joy Lee. And in the first segment, as a quick recap, we just sort of talked a little bit more about the integrated systems model that I talked with Diane Lee about last week. Um, but now, and, and kind of for the rest of the show, I really want to talk more about the thoracic ring approach. Um so, LJ, I guess the, the first question is, how, how did you develop the thoracic ring approach, and why? Did you have a personal experience that kind of led, led you to further research the thoracic area?
1: Uh, yes. But, I mean, well, the thoracic ring approach, as it's come to be called, is that's the, the name we've now given it, yeah. uh, has really developed from many diverse experiences and influences over more than a decade uh, in my physical therapy life, mm-hmm. and uh, the first influences were a combination of my clinical observations around motor control in the thorax with my patients. So this could be this. There was patients who were actually in quite um, severe thoracic pain, mm-hmm. uh, and then I also was seeing uh, quite a few athletes who it, they were. It was less about pain in their thorax, pain about pain in other areas of their body, their shoulders, their low back, Um, but it was really obvious when I looked at their functional tasks uh, related to their sport, uh, they had problems loading through their arms and through their trunk, and what was interesting about these patients, both the ones with severe pain, but also the ones who had changes in their performance, was that they exhibited the inability to control specific segments in their thorax. So I was sort of seeing these patients in the clinic uh, and I was also then having uh, my own challenges in my own body with mm-hmm. um, injuries to my thorax. So one of the interesting things that was unfolding was that while I had these patients who showed um, loss of control in their thorax, so you would get them to lift an arm, and one of the first tests I developed was is called the prone arm lift, where basically the person's lying on their stomach and then they, they lift their arm and you look at the initiation of the task to see what happens in their body and mm-hmm. basically I was interested in anything from their head to their neck control, their scapular, um, their shoulder girdle control, their thorax, their pelvis, their low back, you know, I was looking at control through the body because any task you do is a whole body task
0: mm-hmm.
1: but with these arm loads they would, I would see a shift in their thorax and. Um, and yet when you got them to do, for example, range of motion motion testing like seated trunk rotation, they would look like they had, well, they would have reduced range of motion. So you'd think, Well, isn't that a fifth thorax then? And uh, you know, the paradigms that I had come from in terms of my manual therapy training was also that the thorax is an inherently stiff and stable area, so mm-hmm. you need to mobilize it. Right, right. So, you know, I was, and when I did my manip training, if someone was stiff when they rotated, I would think, oh, I have to go find a joint that's stiff and then manipulate that. And yet, when they were under different loading situations and tasks, those same segments would be moving too much. Mm-hmm. I kind of had these confusing, you know, based on my my paradigms at the time, uh, these these findings weren't making sense, and I really had to sort of develop some new ways to treat these patients and help them get better. Mm-hmm. My own personal experiences were um, similar in that um, I had had um, a hockey injury. i played ice hockey at university, and then I'd I sort of been cross-checked from behind. Oh. <laughs> and then uh, I had quite a significant car accident where I was a passenger, and the, I was in full rotation looking to see what was coming, mm-hmm. and, um, and we were T-boned. So I had a very specific rotational injury with a lateral Impact and the car was total, so it was, it was a significant amount oh my gosh and I was experiencing quite a bit of difficulty uh, actually working as a physical therapist mm-hmm. um, I was specifically using my arms, I was trying to train for my manip exams i couldn 't generate force through or speed through one of my arms very well, and uh, it was quite frustrating, but also I was in quite a bit of pain when I was working so I was seeing, you know, great physios, and they were trying to really help me gain neck control and um, scapular stability mm-hmm. and trying to restore function, and I couldn't, I would always hit this sort of plateau and a wall, and in fact, it would often increase my pain to do those exercises, mm-hmm. and um, it was one day that I was lying on my uh, my living room floor, and I, you know, I knew that I wasn't diligent enough with my exercises, so I was determined this time I was going to do my exercises and get better. And I remember lying on the floor trying to do my scapular stabilization exercises. So you can see it, I'm lying on the floor in my stomach,
2: mm-hmm. trying to
1: put my scapula in the right place. And I was thinking, why is this so easy with my right arm? I can do this so simply, my arm just, you know, lifts off the floor. My left arm, I can try to, I can position my scapula, but then when I try to lift my arm, it feels so heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I felt in my body, because I come from a, um, a figure skating and, and movement background, I could feel that as I was lying on the floor, as I started to lift my right arm, nothing happened anywhere else. So basically, my arm just moved. Mm-hmm. And I started to lift my left arm. As I went to lift the arm, my, I could feel my chest shifting sideways on the floor. And this was sort of the beginning um, of what what was became the prone arm lift test. And I kind of resigned and I thought, what's going on? And I thought, I ran back into the clinic the next day and I said to the one of the physios who had been working on me, I said, I think I have a rib that's popping out, mm-hmm. <laughs> so you need to fix this rib.
0: Put it back in, please. I and yeah. I
1: said, so I said, it's somewhere around seven or six, you just, you just need to push it in and he, he applied compression at the right level in my thorax and basically was providing external control that mm-hmm. my muscles weren't doing. Mm-hmm. This is how I would understand it now. And my arm popped off of the, the, the bed and I went and it felt light and it felt great. And I was like, you just need to take that up and I can go play hockey tonight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... Um, but that began a very long journey in trying to understand uh, what were the factors that, that control our thorax and what was this quote-unquote rib popping out, which now I would say was um, non-optimal control of the ring. Mm-hmm. This is the the same poor segmental loss of control as seeing my patients at the time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I, I started to develop ways to train motor control. And around the same time, Diane and I were playing with the extra leg like, rays and looking at variations and impact of different compressions in, in the pelvis and in functional tasks. And so there's, there's collaborative influences as well in terms of uh, ideas around the whole rest of the body and, and around the pelvis. And then also um, at, around the same time, that was the era when a lot of Paul uh, Hodges' first research around transversus. Glenn right. Gels' research, Jeff Fala, It was all coming out about deep versus superficial muscles, Mm things and strategies with patients with neck pain, with low back pain, but there was nothing on the Mm thorax. And so I basically took from the research in those other areas of the spine and extrapolated and took principles that were coming out from all that research. And then applied them into developing ways to specifically restore and train optimal patterns of motor control both segmentally and multi segmentally in the thorax. Mm-hmm. And I needed this for myself as well as for my patients because my for some reason my caseload um seems to be having a lot of these patients. And what I what I can I know quite strongly now is that You know, those things that we used to think were articular restrictions where, you know, someone sits and turns and they're stiff and they feel stiff and we need to mobilize the thorax is actually more commonly, it's about changes in neuromuscular patterning that create a non-optimal biomechanical and non-optimal position of of thoracic rings. And you can, with a very small manual correction... Mm -hmm the optimal movement of that ring during rotation, and their range of motion is fully restored. And this was, uh, I, I needed the basis of um, Diane Lee's clinical, uh, sorry, clinical biomechanical model, so I had that as a foundation as well to help me understand what should be happening at, at, the, at the segment,
2: mm-hmm. that I
1: could then make it do what I thought it should do. Um, and it also relates to the finding of the driver because many of the patients I was seeing, their pain was in other parts of the body. Right. Um, and yet I could change their problem. And actually the, the only way to change their problem was actually through um, making a change to the control, the biomechanics, and the position of the thoracic rings during their meaningful task. So you can see there's kind of multiple influences, right? There's yeah. you know, my my patients, my own body, I needed to figure out ways to get better.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: actually I I also had a very um, I had a manipulation to my thorax done as part of sort of the journey that, mm-hmm. that actually was not the quite, quite the right direction and not yeah. the quite the right thing for my thorax and uh, it, it then I then after that it was I had even more problems and I became uh, while I was struggling through this whole process, I, I actually was looking at, well, I, I might need to do something different in this career. So I was actually mm-hmm. quite disabled in my body mm-hmm. um, and was really struggling to find a way through it and get better. And so the thoracic ring approach does have, as you say, quite a strong personal component of of needing to find a way to... But another way to
0: get better right I, so just to find a way to kind of heal, I, heal yourself a little bit to heal yourself yeah yeah and um before we go on on to our next commercial break and when we come back i want to talk about I, you had sort of made mention of the drivers and things like that and i i do want to talk about this thoracic ring approach and how it's similar to the integrated systems model in that with each approach, you're sort of looking for the driver, and, and we'll get to that in the next segment, but just so that people have an understanding of, we've been saying thoracic ring, thoracic ring, what is the thoracic ring, and what structures comprise that ring?
1: Yeah, and that's a great question. I mean, the, the key thing is is that uh, historically, we look, we, people talk about the thoracic spine, and they talk about the rib or the rib cage. Mm-hmm. The thoracic ring is actually the true functional spinal unit for the region of the thorax, and it consists of the spinal segment. So, if we talk about the fourth thoracic ring, mm-hmm. um, it, it's named by the rib number. So, the fourth thoracic ring has the right and left fourth ribs, which attach into both the T3 and the T4 vertebra and the T3-4 intervertebral disc. And then the fourth costal cartilages and their anterior attachments into the sternum. And a typical thoracic ring contains 13 articulations. So there's 13 joints that
0: need to be controlled. Mm-hmm. And, and I know, I think during the uh, interview at KEMA, I know Diane said, oh, and don't forget about the last, or she called it the first ring, <laughs> which she considers the pelvis.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, we have this sort of fun... Um, uh, ongoing debate about which is the center of the universe: yes, pelvis being the first primary ring or um, or the thoracic ring. But of course, if we t- go from the top down, you know, your first
0: ring is your your first rib. Sure, sure. <laughs> which which so, uh, would make the the pelvis the final. Yes, eleven. so <laughs> yes, it would be bringing up bringing up the rear, so to speak, literally. <laughs> Literally, literally bringing up the rear. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, on, on that note, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, I want to talk more about how the how there are the similarities to the integrated systems model, and like you had mentioned, talking about drivers and and things like that. So, everybody, stay tuned, and we'll be right back. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network.
3: Hi, I'm Dana.
6: And I'm Don. We are certified certified mediators. mediators, And I
3: am a family and couples licensed therapist and author of Please Don't Buy Me Ice Cream.
6: Our show, New Beginnings, is about helping you and your family recover financially and emotionally and start the beginning of your life.
3: We'll answer your questions on divorce, family court, co-parenting, personal development, new relationships, blending families, and more.
6: Dana and I will bring you to a place of empowerment and belief. That even though marriages may end, families are forever.
3: Join us every Monday starting September 10th at 10 a.m. on TalkingAlternative.com.
6: Are you suffering
4: from aches and pains? Has traditional medicine let you down? Are you tired of taking toxic medications? Then come to the Double Diamond Wellness Center and learn how our natural methods can help you to heal. Call us now at 212-721-8183. That's 212-721-8183, or find us on the web at www.doublediamondwellness.com. We look forward to serving you.
0: You're listening to The Talking Alternative Network. Welcome back to Healthy, Wealthy and Smart. I am your host, Karen Litzy. I'm joined today by physical therapist, Linda Joy Lee. And we are talking about, amongst other things, the integrated systems model and now really more the thoracic ring approach. But in the last segment, uh, LJ did bring up, you know, finding the driver within the, the thoracic ring. And so that is very similar to the integrated systems model. So, um, LJ, how, how do those two models relate? And then how do you take that um, and apply it to your patient?
1: Well, it's taken us a a while to sort of articulate this in terms of how they relate to each other. Di and I have had many discussions about it. And really, the Seraphic Ring approach sits within the greater umbrella of the integrated systems model. And, you know, they've both developed um, sort of alongside each other and uh, have have, um, taken ideas from each other. And actually, as you say, there's commonalities, you know. The thoracic ring approach uses meaningful task analysis because that was a very strong feature of the of looking for uh, whether or not the thorax was the problem because the thorax often is pain less it doesn't give people pain but they it is dysfunctional and creates pain in other areas so the the meaningful task assessment and the principle of going beyond the pain um, and not being directed only by pain, that is within the integrated systems model, Mm -hmm. comes from the thoracic ring approach ideas. Um, And in terms of, um, you know, finding the primary driver, that is a concept, that that principle actually was, was developed within the thoracic ring approach, so basically developed within looking at functional tasks. Uh, that I was doing and going, well, the thorax is clearly losing control or is showing non-optimal biomechanics, and the scapula is showing, you know, funny patterns, and then their humerus is shifting forward, and then their C6 is going to their right, and then their head is side bending. What am I going to treat? Mm-hmm. And um, I actually presented this in 2005 at the Canadian Osteopathic Symposium about just using the functional test of an of an arm lift. To be able to find the driver within the functional chain um from basically the thorax up to the head so the principle of finding the driver actually came from the work i did in the thorax mm-hmm. and then uh, we, it, it's now become a primary feature of the integrated systems model and you know the thorax is part of the whole body and sure. certainly uh, you can have the, the power of the thoracic ring approach there's components of it too that are a very specific a set of manual assessment techniques as well as specific treatment techniques that treat the whole functional unit, the ring. Um, And also that, um, as I'm sure we'll probably get into a bit, is is the various mechanisms by which the thorax can affect function in the rest of the body. And, you know, these come from my many, many different patient experiences where I've seen changes in patients, um, you know, trying to train abdominal wall function and seeing someone has, you know, no poor transversus recruitment on one side, Mm -hmm. overactive external obliques and overactive internal obliques on the other side, so really asymmetrical patterns, and then trying to retrain that based on uh, the principles and research that we have from uh, looking at abdominal function work with Paul and other people, and Mm then going, well... These these things aren't really working, and then making changes to the thoracic ring, and then automatically getting optimal function in the abdominal wall. And scratching my head and going, "That's really cool, but why?" Why? Does that
2: yeah.
1: You know? So then starting to explore some of the mechanisms. So the thoracic ring approach sort of covers all of all of those various mechanisms: how the thorax can drive foot pain, how the thorax can drive knee pain, how the thorax can drive pelvis pain, how the thorax can drive, <laughs> drive headaches. You know. Uh, how the thorax can drive incontinence, that sort of sits within the thoracic ring approach. But, of course, um, the principle of finding the driver, you know, is one that is shared by both approaches Mm -hmm. as they develop together. Meaningful task analysis sits in both approaches. Um, And overall, the thoracic ring approach sits within the integrated systems model because you can equally have thoracic pain... That is driven from someone's foot problem, so you can have right. thoracic pain. So the thorax isn't always the driver.
0: And you know when, it, and this is something that I think comes down to patient care. But you know, let's say you are you're treating a patient and they come in, like you said, with foot pain, or let's say it's knee pain, or neck pain, or low back pain, and you say, oh, you know something, I think we're going to treat your thorax for this. I think a lot of patients may look at you like, what? But that's not what hurts. So what is wrong with my phys- My last physical therapist? You know, they really worked on my back. I mean, it didn't help, but at least they were working on my back.
1: Which is where I hurt. So we work. Yeah, exactly. You know what well, I mean? So
0: how do you say to a patient, well, listen, or not even say, but but. What do you do in the course of your evaluation, let's say your treatment, to kind of get that patient to to say, oh, you know something? I think, yes, this, this does feel like the path I need to be on.
1: Yeah, I, I think, you know, referencing back to, to the interview with Diane last week, I mean, one of the key things in our examination is to take the patient's story. So, and the story gives us what has meaning for them. So then the rest of the assessment unfolds around what has meaning for them So right away. You've already connected into what is going to resonate for them. So, in many ways, that doesn't need explanation. And you, what what we're really aiming to do is to change the person's experience of their body. Patients come in with non-optimal experiences. Whether you're feeling stiff and achy, whether your leg feels weak when you push off when you go up a hill, whether you have incontinence those are all variations of non-optimal experiences of your body, right? Mm -hmm. And so the meaningful task is the task where you have this non-optimal experience. So in the meaningful task, we look at the whole body, and I'm looking for areas that are not showing optimal biomechanics or control or alignment during the meaningful task from your head to your toes. And if I'm finding that the thorax is showing these non-optimal patterns early and is what we call a site of fail-low transfer, in, at initiation of the task, mm-hmm. um, then I'll go in and compare that to others. So, you know, say your foot drops in and your tail is drops, and you start to wait there um, uh, with an internal rotation, and then your hip goes forward, and then your pelvis unlocks, and then your ninth nice thoracic ring goes right, and your fourth thoracic ring goes left, and then your head steps in. Mm-hmm. So through the chain, we look at you standing there. We go, yeah, that's not really an ideal way to stand on your leg. So we then go through, and then we then manually provide what we feel would be optimal, and then we repeat the task. And in someone who's a thoracic-driven problem, wherever the pain is, whether you've got Achilles tendonopathy or low back pain, when I go in and I correct the ring, it will change the experience of their body in that task immediately. Mm-hmm. So their back pain will improve, and they'll say, what are you doing?
2: <laughs> and
1: they'll say, right. Oh Well, you've got this twist up here in your thorax, because this is what this region does. The primary function of the thorax is to rotate. So I'm basically untwisting things very specifically, and that means that your low back doesn't have a twist and a compression on it. And they go, well, my back pain's better, or I feel much lighter. And Mm -hmm. so that almost precludes a left brain explanation, because... You've immediately created what we call the wow experience. They stand there and they go, Wow, that feels different. And, you know, there's some patients who do need an explanation. And then I can go into various different mechanisms. And, you know, I think one of the powerful things about the thorax is because it's such a major connector in so many different systems, it can have multiple impacts throughout the body. And we can talk about that if you'd like. But, you know, I, I, it's really interesting because the number of times that I have to do a detailed explanation is far less for patients than for actual physios. Mm-hmm.
6: <laughs> you know, yeah.
1: because they, you you correct a ring and if the patient feels that their body feels much better, they're quite happy for me to treat it. They just say, okay, well, what are you going to do now? Walk around with me because that feels great.
0: Right, yeah, and that that is kind of the next question is, you know, okay, so you've manually... Corrected for this, you know, f- problem within the thoracic ring, but then, yeah, that. What comes next? How does the patient then carry that over? Whether it be through home program or if you use taping techniques, you know, mm-hmm. how does that? How does that then move forward for the patient? Well, so if the
1: thoracic ring correction is the best correction that changes their experience during their meaningful task mm-hmm. and. And changes the performance of their meaningful task. So you compare that to correcting their foot or correcting their shoulder girdle and you go, yeah, this is a thoracic ring driver. So then it's exactly what we do in everywhere else in the body. What we have to figure out is what is the underlying impairment for the thoracic ring Mm -hmm. that's making it behave in this non-optimal way. So is it something about the neural system, the way the nervous system is controlling the muscles around the thoracic ring and uh, related to the thorax, uh, and that's often the the a very common reason why mm-hmm. is that some muscles that are overactive and other muscles that aren't working, the deep segmental muscles are are not working properly to control the ring in relation to the above and below and in relation to all the rest of the the body. Mm-hmm. Um, and then or is it something in the articular system, or so do you have a, a true fibrotic joint that needs to be treated or is it something in the visceral system or something myofascial and Mm -hmm. and that's connected longer so we do vector analysis of the thoracic ring and and figure out what the underlying impairment is and that way we can then treat that impairment so we get rid of that old strategy and then we have to train a new strategy and that will involve taping the the ring very specifically that will involve integrate teaching them very specific cues to segmentally control the ring Uh, And they often, with the thorax, you need to teach them what things to let go of and release. Mm -hmm. Um, Scapular bracing is a really um, common thing that will drive thoracic dysfunction because it compresses and locks up the rings so that they can't do what we call the ring dance.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: There's no salsa in your thorax when you have scapular bracing. And so you have to teach them what to let go of and then also what muscles to connect to. That helps them keep the right alignment and then integrate it into movement training that is related to their meaningful task. Mm-hmm. And, you know, your movement training will always keep in mind, well, what are the tissue requirements? So, you know, what stage of healing are the tissues at? And what are tissue requirements in terms of, you know, do you have a tendonopathy? What kind mm-hmm. of loading do you need to do? And mm-hmm. what do they need to do for their goal? So, versus running a marathon versus you know, um, lifting 300 pounds, you you have to think of those things and that's how you design your your movement program. Um, But, you know, and for example, if I have someone who's got a thoracic-driven groin pain, that's the thoracic-driven hip impingement, I'll I'll show the patient and give them the cues and get them to feel the impact of when they change their strategy at their driving thoracic ring, what that does to their hip position and get them to feel the difference... Mm -hmm. Without the cues and with and without the tape um, during their movement, and you basically have to increase their awareness, use all your principles of neuroplasticity mm-hmm. and and you know positive feedback, lots of sensory input, which the taping also helps, um, and get them to be aware of how they need to move in a new way, and then that be what to become the new automatic new strategy that they that they implement.: mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. um, And, and, you know, the interesting thing is um, within sort of this thoracic ring approach and the integrated systems model is that, of course, everything kind of goes back to that meaningful task versus, you know, here's a stuck segment. I'm going to manipulate or mobilize that and then the patient will be fine. Right. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's definitely much more all-inclusive w- with the body. And I think a lot of times that therapists can forget about that. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, that they may say, oh, here's a stuck segment. I'm going to mobilize that and send, them on, send the patient on their way. They feel better. And then a week later, they come back with the same pain because you haven't really addressed, like you said, perhaps the neuromuscular aspect of it, the yeah. retraining they just kind of set back into that old habit or old dysfunctional pattern of movement mm-hmm. and, and so I
2: think
1: the story the thor—the thorax is a place where we haven't been very good at training we've been right. really good at releasing it you know get them unstuck they move they go oh that feels good and then they get dependent on that and they do a lot of self-cracking mm-hmm. they, you know they get partners to walk on their back right. and all kinds of things right right, right. Um, and but that's what we do and you know, manual therapy and, and all forms of what I call manual magic, you know, whether it's, you know, a neuromuscular release, um, all different types of um, release work, are great ways to open windows of movement possibility. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you look at the, the motor control research, a lot of times what you see, and, and then in our clinic, you know, the patients, our patients lose options. You know, a healthy nervous system has choice. A healthy nervous system can... Choose different strategies for different tasks, mm-hmm. change them quickly, they can modulate forces, and yet a system that's in pain and dysfunction often uses the same strategy across many tasks. And they get kind of locked in and stuck in one way of moving, and that doesn't serve them very well, and it creates strain and compression and torsion on structures that aren't meant to have them, and that gives us pain. So one of the things we do with our manual magic is we, we do this beautiful release work. We remove the old strategy temporarily and then, like you say, we sort of give them a few exercises or we don't give them any exercises right. and off they go.
2: Right.
1: And we, we haven't used that beautiful window that we've created to then train things. And the research in neuroplasticity really supports this. That, you know. I always say, have said to my therapist, you need to spend the last 10 minutes of every session doing some sort of new patterning, new movement training, build the new brain map. Mm-hmm. That, you know, Henry Sow's research in uh, mapping transverses and, and seeing the changes with just doing isolation exercises of transverses, um, and he, he was one of Paul's students as well, Right, was one of the the mechanistic types of research that really affected and changed both Diane and my practice in that we decided we needed to spend more time doing the retraining posture within the clinic because you get immediate changes from doing those types of uh, training exercises uh, and and manual therapy is a great way to open up the options so use it so it's, it's a great uh, pairing of things but like you say we don't see them as separate we see them as all achieving the same aim of training a new strategy which right. is why in the puzzle this
0: the outside circle right the strategies for functioning performance right and and we're gonna we're gonna take a quick break on that and um, when we come back we're just going to kind of wrap things up and continue this talk a little bit more because i have some more questions so uh everybody stay tuned we'll be right back you're listening to the talking alternative network
4: That's 212-721-8183. The Conscious Consultant, helping conscious people be better
6: business people. Have you ever considered consulting a roadmap when you feel you need help getting to your destination? When the normal path seems blocked, a little help can come in handy when choosing an alternate route
0: Welcome back to Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart. I am your host, Karen Litze, right here on TalkingAlternative.com, and I'm joined today by physiotherapist Linda Joy Lee. And we're talking about the thoracic ring approach and, and the integrated systems model. And, and Linda, following up from, from last, uh, the last segment, uh, we were talking about motor control and how you and Diane now sort of make it a point to spend that last 10 minutes in the clinic with your patient, sort of being able to change, uh, you know, working on those those principles of neuroplasticity and, and trying to change some some movement patterns and, and uh, neuromuscular patterns with the patient. My question is: is, when you send the patient home, how much do you tell the patient to practice what they've learned at home? You know, is it because you know you hear different things? Is it you know twenty-two to thirty-three minutes of focused exercise per day? I know um, at, at the the lecture with Paul and and Laura Paul was talking about transverse abdominus um, exercises, and he was saying 10 times a day holding for 10 seconds. And then people say, well, no, you should do it, you know, 40 times a day holding 10 seconds. So, wh- you know, what sort of information do you give to your patients in order to follow up to get the best sort of neuromuscular repattering, I guess?
1: Yeah, and I, I guess, you know, all of those different things have, you know, I've heard similar things to you, and, you know, you're always reading the next study, and, right. you know, they say it takes 10,000 hours to become an expert and all these kinds of things, and, you know, obviously, um, Paul's work in motor control and uh, my experiences at UQ and uh, as I've done my PhD on the Thorax has also hugely influenced uh, my approach and then, of course, our work, right? And, um, yeah you know, huge interest in, in the area of motor control and neuroplasticity. And then there's also the, the thing about time constraints in the clinic and, and the reality of patients' lives. You know, you have three kids, you have a job, you have um, a, a parent who's also unwell and you're trying to find time to do your exercises. Mm-hmm. so sometimes 10 times a day is, is just not something that they're going to do. And, you know, something that we see in terms of you know, how do we help people make change in their lives? Really, that's what we're trying to do. We want to change how they live and move in their bodies, but that means they have to do something different. And change is a whole other area of research and literature. And we, you have to set reasonable goals and mm-hmm. reasonable things for people. Otherwise, they just won't even try. True. So one of the things that I say to my patients is, well, I need you to do these at least twice a day. Uh, I need you to do is to find two windows a day where you can set a little bit of time aside or you can focus on this.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And you know, Diane and I find that we can see clinical changes in, you know, for instance, if we're trying to get a specific muscle patterning firing, say work on it for seven to ten days, mm-hmm. we, see, we see that skill come. And I, I tell them it's like a new skill. You just have to learn this new skill and it, this works well with athletes, you know, you, you've been using this muscle too much, so we're actually teaching you to stop using it and we're getting you to use another one. And Seven to ten days you can usually see change if they've been diligent. But I've mm-hmm. seen it happen as short as, as, as a week, mm-hmm. three days, if, they, if they've if they done it many, many times a day. And, mm-hmm. you know, some of the athletes where it's their full-time job, sure. to train and to work out, they can think of it 50 times a day because they're, they're not doing a whole bunch of other things in the midst of it. And so I really gauge it based on the patient, but I do explain to them that the more they do it, that the the faster that new brain map will come online Mm -hmm. and become the more automatic one, and that if we try to build it into a condensed phase, so just focus on this for the next three days until you come see me again, then they have a short-term goal. You've said it, that it's realistic, and they know they have parameters that they can reach for as well. So I say, well, it always has to be good quality. right? So I I guess one of the things we do differently is we do something called load-effort task analysis. So we give them something that they can reference it to so for instance if you're doing a thoracic cue you first lift your arm or stand on your leg or do your squat feel what it's like without your new strategy using Mm -hmm. the old strategy do your release and connect and align cues, and then do it again and it should feel different in terms of how the task feels and you keep doing your your exercise until the task no longer changes so if the task feels hard no matter what you think or do you fatigue the system whether uh-huh. you fatigued on a muscular level or you fatigued on a neurophysiological level you've taken it to the to the end to the of end. that session yeah and so we give them guidelines that they can self-progress self-monitor and then also say look the research shows that the more often you do this the fast the more you'll get the map uh-huh. consolidated so patients are empowered to with that information to be able to take control of how quickly they can progress and also know that they have the responsibility that if they don't do it, then it's likely we'll have to keep giving
0: them the same exercise when they come back next time. Right. Right. And, and, and thank you for that. That was the perfect answer. And unfortunately, and, and, you know, God, I wish we had another hour, but we are running out of time. So (laughs) (laughs) what I would really love for you to do is to, Uh, Just give the listeners If they wanted to find out more information About you and your work And what you do Where can they find that?
1: Uh, well, I do have a website that is ljlee.ca, and that will that leads people to my clinic and to my work with Diane at Discover Physio. Uh, so that sort of is a, is a base uh, website, and then discoverphysio.ca is also a key website for resources. Uh, we have some uh, videos, a series of videos I did uh, on the thoracic ring mm-hmm. approach that um, I developed with, with was produced with Clinical Edge in Australia, and. Um, and, and they're
0: excellent, by the way. Websites
1: the oh, thank you. Uh-huh. <laughs> so those two websites would be sort of uh, the key reference points for for my work. Yeah.
0: Great. And, you know, thank you again for for coming on, taking the time out, and sort of doing a nice two-part series here with, with Diane. I'm so happy that I was able to integrate this. So thank you very, very much for coming on.
1: And thank you so much for having us, Karen. We both really enjoyed the experience. Oh, Great. Experience.
0: Great And and next week I think I'm going to have um, Eric Robertson on He's a physical therapist uh, Out of Colorado And Texas And we're going to talk about Some of the bad PR That physical therapy Has been getting lately From the Dr. Oz show To various websites And things like that LJ I don't know if you've seen The, the stuff from the Dr. Oz show But No Oh boy All I have to Is say it? It, it was not It was not in keeping what what everything you just said, how complicated and how much physical therapists look at movement patterns and what we do, this was how to correct back pain forever, and it was ultrasound, a tiger bomb patch, and a bumpy ball. Oh, dear. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to talk a little bit about that and, and how sort of leaders in the industry, such as yourself and Diane and, and Lorimer, are really trying to change what we do as physical therapists and kind of what we're known for. So... Um, and,
1: yeah, and I think that's the thing is We're always, we're always learning, we're always moving forward yeah. And um, I think you know one of the things we do encourage physical therapists to do Is to continue to explore and be creative But to also take yourself, your own body on a journey yeah. Move better and feel better and be better Because what you learn about your own body along the way May be what you need to help a future patient And uh, there's always more
0: for us to learn Absolutely. And on that, we're going to sign off here. So, everyone, thanks for listening and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart.
5: You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network.
3: Hi, I'm Dana.
6: And I'm Don. We are certified certified mediators. Mediators, And I
3: am a family and couples licensed therapist and author of Please Don't Buy Me Ice Cream.
6: Our show, New Beginnings, is about helping you and your family recover financially and emotionally and start the beginning of your life.
3: We'll answer your questions on divorce, family court, co-parenting, personal development, new relationships, blending families, and more.
6: Dana and I will bring you to a place of empowerment and belief that even though marriages may end, families are forever.
3: Join us every Monday starting September 10th at 10 a.m. on TalkingAlternative.com.
4: Are you suffering from aches and pains? Has traditional medicine let you down? Are you tired of taking toxic medications? Then come to the Double Diamond Wellness Center and learn how our natural methods can help you to heal. Call us now at 212-721-8183. That's 212-721-8183. Or find us on the web at www.doublediamondwellness.com. We look forward to serving you.
6: You're listening to The Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking alternative.
5: This is Tony Martinetti, the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio.
4: Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Technology, fundraising, compliance, social media. Small and medium nonprofits have needs in all these areas. My guests are expert in all these areas and more. Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern,
5: on Talking Alternative Broadcasting. Are you fed up with talking points rhetoric? Every way you turn, it's left or right spin. Ideology, no reality. In fact, it's ideology over intellect. No more. It's time for the truth. Join me, Larry Sharp, a.k.a. the Neosage, Tuesday nights, 9 to 11 Eastern, for the Ivory Tower Radio Program. In The Ivory Tower, we'll discuss what's important to you, society, politics, business, and family. It's provocative talk for the realist and the skeptic who want to know what's really going on, what does it mean, and what can be done about it. So gain special access to The Ivory Tower and listen to me, Larry Sharp, your Neosage, Tuesday nights, 9 to 11, New York time. Go to ivorytowerradio.com for details. That's ivorytowerradio.com. The Ivory Tower is a great place to visit. For both entertainment and education. Listen in Tuesday nights, 9 to 11. It will make you smarter. TalkingAlternative.com